Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is the cook. Jason Rosenbaum <laughs> of the St. Louis Beacon. I baked cookies. He did. And? Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And our special guest today is U.S. Senator? Claire McCaskill. Senator, thank you for joining us. Um, let me start by saying Jason can bake. <laughs> yes! I disrespected Jason, um, but with a DM on, on, on Twitter land uh, months ago and kind of questioned his ability to bake, but he brought cookies this morning, although I didn't eat a whole one. I did eat half one, and it was delicious. Wow. My ego, which was already large to begin with, is now <laughs> there massive. There you go. Thank you, Senator. I think it was called into question a year ago uh, around Thanksgiving. Yeah, so, maybe. Is it that long ago? So this has been a long time, a long time in the coming. Yes, but we weren't. We aren't here to talk about my cooking skills. We're here well, to talk to our first U.S. senator on our show. Thank you. Yes. It is quite an honor, Senator. Oh, it's great to be here. This okay. is fun. Yeah. Well, most of the time we start off with having our guests tell them tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, you've been in the Senate for a while, but tell us uh, about how you got into politics uh, in a smaller office, maybe. Well, I um, was raised in a household where we talked about government and elected officials around the dinner table. I was never taught that people who ran for office were nasty and dirty and horrible. I was taught that they were, by and large, good and honorable people that had differences of opinion. My parents, although not big political people in in you know in terms of being quote unquote important, they worked on campaigns, and so I was you know um, when I lived in Columbia, I was t- taken to the stump speeches on the courthouse lawn and listened to Tom Eagleton give speeches as a little girl and watched Stuart Symington run when I was a little girl, and I um, the bug kind of took, and so I started working on campaigns when I was in high school and was um, told by my teachers in as young as junior high that I was always better at those questions where there wasn't a right or wrong answer where I could argue. <laughs> and so it, uh, I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. Now, your mother was a trailblazer of some sort. Correct. She was the first woman to be elected to the Columbia City Council. Uh, just an amazing woman. I was honored to have encountered her on the campaign trail in 2006. How did she kind of inspire the political side of you? Oh, she's, um, you know, it, she is part of me every single day. Uh, she, by far, was the best politician I ever met in my life. Uh, she never met a stranger. Uh, she role modeled to me that you never look past the person you're talking to, to someone over their shoulder who you might think is more important. And that is um, an incredibly important lesson uh, if you want to be in this line of work where you're serving the public. So she was uh, and she was strong and smart and funny and didn't take herself too seriously, uh, opinionated. Both my mom and dad um, were very supportive of me being bossy. Um, I think for young women, it's hard. It was particularly hard then. It's not as hard now. But um, when you have an opinion and you state it, you know, strongly – Sometimes you feel like as a young lady that you are being less attractive to men. And my mom and dad both were like, hey, they'll figure it out eventually, be who you are. And so um, I would say that both mom and dad, um, even though I found her political career, quote unquote, embarrassing at the time, 
there's no question that a lot of who I am is a direct result of, of my mom. And, and I'll dad. never forget her cane. I think it had a donkey head it on did. it. It did. <laughs> Which caught... is one of the reasons I said she was an amazing figure, because of that cane partly, but also oh, because was, of her. You know, listen, there's nobody. I, mean, I remember back when somebody was trying to get me to run against uh, Bill Webster. And someone said to me, well, you can't run against Bill Webster. You know, his father, Dick Webster, is, you know, he's just too powerful. You could never overcome Dick Webster. And I said, you've not met my mother. Um, my mother could campaign circles around anybody. And I'll never forget in, in one of our statewide campaigns, um, it was in, <laughs> it was in uh, 2006, and we were campaigning. We were, we were in, on the RV, and we were in a really rural community. And we pulled up in the gas station, and there were four or five guys in their overalls. Right. And they're, you know, John Deere caps, and they were around the gas pumps and their pickups. And Mom got out of the RV with her cane, and she walked over to the gas pump, and she looked at the gas pump, and she looked at them, and she looked at the gas pump, and she said, hey, you guys. He, says, he said, I'm thinking that George Bush is an oil man. And, of course, they all got it immediately and started laughing. And before it was over, I mean, I'm sure these were all Republicans. They'd all taken my bumper stickers. They all thought Mom was great. And so, you know, and I'm sure word went out in that little town that week that Mom was um, real and nice and funny. And so she was quite an asset on the campaign trail. Now, something I do have to ask, though, what office were you considering running against Bill Webster for? That was back. Uh, attorney General? It was Attorney General. Um, uh, in fact, Harriet Woods and Mayor Shamel uh, asked me, and, it, and I'll never forget it because I was a state representative, and they sent somebody from St. Louis, some volunteer, yeah. drove to Jeff City and picked me up and brought me to St. Louis and took me to dinner and tried to talk this to me. This would have been in the 80s for our listeners. Right. right. This would have been, I guess, when he – it probably would have been 86, Yeah, I'm guessing, when he ran for – Attorney General uh, re-election, in, I think he first got elected in, no, maybe 88. Yeah, yeah, yeah 88. 84 yes. and then 88. Yeah, it was 88. And they were trying to talk me into running against him um, for Attorney General when he had been after one year of his, his after his first term. Uh, yeah. I was doing a little bit of research last night. I was looking at the Blue Book of 1983, and there were two female senators and I think about 24 state representatives who were women when you entered the legislature. There are now, I think, five state senators, and it may be 38. But I just kind of wanted to ask, as the first female elected U.S. senator, what was it kind of like entering the legislative politics in the, the early 80s? Was it different because of your gender or anything like that? Or how kind of were you perceived when you entered politics? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, it's funny because I'm working on a book in this chapter I've just been working on. And it was an interesting time because um, I was the only uh, woman who was a lawyer, mm-hmm. And most of the women down there, um, not all, but a lot of them had gotten there because of their family or their husbands. Yeah, especially um, back then. Yeah, it it really wasn't as much. Um, and so it was. It was. I, I mean, I had great role models in you know Annette Morgan and Karen McCarthy, who were members of the House that were also from Kansas City, and we they were they were terrific. But it it was a tough time, um, and there was some hazing um, by. Some of my classmates uh, in the legislature that were lawyers, where they kind of formed a club to see if they could kind of screw with my legislation, and so there were times that it, I had to have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. You had to, I mean, you have to make a choice at some point: are you a victim or are you a leader? But to say that there was some sexual harassment would be an understatement. There was a lot of sexual harassment. Really, this is this is in in the state capitol. Oh yeah. Well, at the time, 
if you went and looked at the highest paid assistants in people's offices, almost every single one of them was having an affair with their boss. There's that. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't yeah. have said that. Long That's in the pause. book. <laughs> That's in the book. <laughs> but I wanted to ask. Okay, well, yeah. now It'll be in the book. Well, there was a reason I asked that question because, you know, as someone who followed the legislature for, for years as a reporter, I was just curious to how it was back in the 1980s because, as Joe has mentioned many times on the show, I wasn't even born yet when you entered the yeah. legislature, and I'm sure it was a different environment and experience than it is now. But even now, I think women in the legislature, whether Republican or Democrat, still kind of deal with the issue since it is such a male dominated entity. So yeah, it was and it was a different time. And there were and I was single. um, And, you know, I wasn't married. And that was, you know, I didn't I I used to make the joke, somebody on the floor of the house said, you know, I've got the American dream, I've got the family and kids and my home. And I'm like, going, well, what am I the American nightmare? (laughs) You know, I I rented and didn't own. Uh, I mean, I had to borrow pets for the pictures for my brochures. I mean, I didn't even, you know, so it was, I was not the norm down there in many ways, because most people um, were not single. And most people um, were not young. Um, and I was in my 20s, and so it was it was an interesting time. Yeah, this is pre-term limits, just for our listeners so they know. So you, there were some members of the legislature, including the, the legendary Dick Webster, who had been there for decades. And not just that, and I want to say that I, I, am a, I can argue term limits on either side, but there were also amazing members of the legislature. Um, you had Wayne Good. You had Bud Barnes, um, one a Democrat, one a Republican, very knowledgeable. They knew um, the intricacies of state law, particularly education funding and tax policy, as well or better as any staff member, uh, as any lobbyist. And you just don't have that anymore. No, no. Because the turnover, you just can't gain the, the level of expertise that allows you to go toe-to-toe with staff and lobbyists, and that's the downside of term limits is that you do lose this body of – I mean, the best way to have term limits is to have elections and have the people elect um, – you know, decide not to reelect somebody. That's how people should be term limited, I think, to artificially say you're done uh, at a certain point in time, I think, in the long run, diminishes the ability of the body to do good work. Yeah, because a lot of the, bla- the of the brain trust in the – and Jeff City is in the hall – Outside the state house, it's all the former legislators who are now lobbyists. So if you have a question, I usually run out of the press right. gallery and collar one of those guys or right. ladies and say, "Yeah, you find Frank Floatron, or you yeah. find Tom McCarthy. You, know, you find somebody who who's um, say, spent some time going there." On? Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, before we kind of jump in the issues, this was a question I was wanting to ask: What was the toughest campaign that you've ever ran in your in your career? Well, that's a good question. Um, there have been several that are very tough. I, I would say the governor's race was the toughest because it was so lonely. Um, you know, when you take on a sitting governor of your own party, you have to kind of steel yourself for the inevitable, which is that the vast majority of people that have been your friends and supporters for years are no longer your friends and supporters. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I made huge mistakes in that campaign. I assumed once I won the primary, I completely underestimated Matt Blunt. I completely underestimated how badly people in Missouri wanted to change teams, not just quarterbacks. Um, And I um, overestimated uh, how well I could do in the urban areas and didn't spend enough time really getting it to a granular level in terms of campaigning in outstate Missouri. 
So I learned a lot in that campaign. I learned more in that campaign than any of the campaigns I've run. But it certainly was the toughest because there was incredible pressure. And I was newly married, and they came after my husband, and he was not prepared for it. And it was really hard for him and emotionally. I mean, I can think about it and get emotional, how painful it was for my husband to be called sleazy and unethical and all the things that go on in these kinds of campaigns. And watching him be hurt. Um, I mean, he was like a wounded puppy. He couldn't believe these things were being said about him. And you, you're helpless. You really can't do anything about it. So yeah. that was the hardest for sure. Well, and then you had the Kerry campaign, who then pulled out three weeks before the election. After denying it, that's one of my key things. Yeah, about Joe told me this anecdote <laughs> About last Terry McAuliffe, week. which we won't go into. That, this would take an entire show. <laughs> it would take an entire show. But it was, it. Um, you know, and I'll never forget the time I ran into John Kerry when I was campaigning for the Senate, and I'm in his office in Washington. And clearly he'd forgotten that they'd pulled out of Missouri. Because I sit down in his office, he goes, well, now what happened in your governor's race? And I just wanted to go, you, uh, are you kidding what happened? You took the entire field staff with you three weeks before election day. I do have kind of a theory in Missouri politics that sometimes when you lose a high-profile election, it really does make you smarter and better for the next election. Not only did you prove that in 2006, but Senator Blunt has lost a couple statewide elections. Blaine Luke DeMeyer lost the treasurer election before. The governor has lo- the lost two. The governor lost two. I-, I think that even though it probably is painful to lose, if you learn from those mistakes, it can help you in a bigger election going down the road. So. You sound like my pitch to some people I'm trying to get I know, to run I- for the legislature <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to win every election. You can you can win by losing sometimes. Yeah. yeah well, now that we've done the memory lane, okay. Yes, we, we should get- probably – Jump into some more current events. Yes, fabulous. This is Uh, great stuff. So, shut down, crisis averted, but not without a few battle scars. I'd be curious. A lot of people saw some sort of showdown or shutdown coming. I'd be curious to know when did you know that this was going to be a a showdown between Republicans and Democrats, and and that they were actually going to do it, and that they were actually going to do it. Well, I'm, I hope it doesn't surprise people to know that I talk to Republicans all the time, and I have many colleagues that are Republicans that I work closely with. And I think I realized it was going to happen when I will not say the senator who said it, and I will not say in what context they said it, but when they said to me, you have to understand we're convinced that Cruz is going to do this just for himself. And if you understand the rules of the Senate and you understand the dynamics right now within the Republican Party, then it it became clear to me it was going to happen um, about a few days before he decided to do his uh, his his long speech on the floor where he was trying to out Rand Paul by um, becoming the new darling of the Tea Party. And it wasn't technically a filibuster because he wasn't filibuster. actually filibustering anything like Rand Paul was against the CIA director. No, he didn't. Ha- you know, he could have left the floor any time. I mean, he did, he wasn't controlling the floor. He was he was just deciding he wanted to talk for a long time. I mean, the vote was already set. When you filibuster, typically you're delaying a vote on something. Um, we all knew the vote was going to be the next afternoon. He knew the vote was going to be the next afternoon. He just was trying to make a name for himself. Mm-hmm. It, I said this at the time. It was like he thought he was in a movie about himself, and he was starring in a movie, and this was his role in the movie. And um, it, it, everything he did around this was um, with an eye towards how is this going to be covered in the press. Now, one of the things that fascinated me about the shutdown from the Senate side uh, dealing with the delegation was that 
while. You did put out a couple statements, but you'd furloughed most of your staff, and it seemed like you took a lower-profile role than Blunt, for example, who did several um, press conferences on the phone, which he does once a week. But he was really upfront about saying this was a mistake, this had been a mistake from the get-go. I mean, he was saying that just a couple days in, and I was surprised he was so uh, public about it. Was there, I guess my question is, was it a decision on your part to kind of let the Republicans go back and forth and wring their hands over this? Or, um, I mean, how did you see your role during the shutdown until the final votes? Well, it was frustrating to me because, you know, I've learned in this business that sometimes you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, I treated the, the furloughs and the shutdown the way the rest of the federal government treated them. And I didn't feel comfortable not furloughing the majority of my staff. Which Blunt did not. Blunt did not furlough anybody. He didn't. And I'm not being critical of Senator Blunt. I, I, you know, he made a different decision. But I, for me, I was more comfortable that my office was being treated the same way as other federal offices. Um, now, had I left everybody on and Senator Blunt furloughed, I'm sure that the Tea Party would have said, well, look, she doesn't understand the beauty of smaller government. And I'm sure I would have gotten criticized that, oh, the rules don't apply to her. And, you know, they apply to everyone else. So it is interesting that I think no matter which way you went, you were subject to criticism in terms of who was furloughed. So I really didn't have a support staff around me. And a lot of what you do in terms of outreach in this office has to do with lots of people helping you get things set up. So but I wasn't strategically trying to stay quiet. I, I will say this, though. Um, the one thing that I did learn during this shutdown is that the Republican Party still has the majority of United States senators in their ranks that are responsible. And um, while I disagree with them, I mean, Senator Blunt's a great example. He and I disagree on many, many things. But he knew how damaging this was to our country. He knew the consequences of us defaulting would not be something we felt today, but for decades to come. He knew that it needed to be avoided at all costs. And he, the beauty of running statewide is that it's much easier to be a moderate and reasonable if you are not worried about your right flank or your left flank in a primary. Now, contrast the way Roy Blunt handled the shutdown with our congressional delegation. Correct. I mean, it is night and day. Um, I will be honest with you, I was shocked and surprised that every congressional member of the Missouri delegation that are Republican voted to shut down the government, voted not just to shut down the government, voted for us to default. And um, it was I, I was surprised by that, especially because I thought Roy Blunt did provide great leadership for them um, and and was willing to take the heat, so to speak, and provide, quote unquote, ground cover for the Republican members of the delegation to uh, vote to avoid default. Now, so that dur- was surprising. Uh, during like the, the throes of the shutdown, there was like, I think, an NBC report about how the House had become so intransigent because a lot of them are in very safe districts. You look at Missouri, all Six of those Republicans are in no danger of being ousted by a Democrat. You mentioned before it's really primary where they're where they're kind of in 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 trouble. Do you think that that was kind of the roots of how the House acted, just that these Republicans and to some extent Democrats could suffer really no political consequences for whatever they did? If I were teaching a political science course right now in college, I would um, definitely have the students talk about what has happened in terms of the moderate middle. 
um, particularly in the House of Representatives. And what happens when you let members of Congress draw their own districts? They're going to want to draw them safely. And is that really good for our democracy, that the only thing you're ever worried about is a primary in your own party? That makes the middle atrophy. That makes compromise very elusive because you don't get benefit by compromising with the other party. You benefit by being rigid and extreme, and I can be the most conservative or I can be the most liberal. So I think that one of the things that may happen here, I talked to some of my Republican colleagues after we had voted, and they're tired of getting ads run against them by uh, Jim DeMint's group and Heritage and all these right-wing groups. And I think the business community was shocked that they played with a default. The Republican Party played with a default. I wouldn't be surprised if you begin seeing some moderate Republican organizations funded by people in the business community to begin to challenge some of these Republicans from the middle. You know, a good a Jack Danforth Republican, a Kit Pond Republican, a Nancy Landon Kassebaum Republican, a Howard Baker Republican, Republicans that believe in smaller government, um, lower taxes, have are very fiscal conservatives, but they do not think we need to worry about Sharia law or Agenda 21 or some of the nonsense that is being spewed by the very extreme part of the Republican Party. Yeah, because I wrote about this last late last week because I was able to get Blunt and Wagner and some others. But yeah, it was interesting to me because, like Wagner, for example, voted for the shutdown. And default. And default. At the same time, she made a comment on the floor. She was glad it was over. So it was, I mean, not on on, on the floor, but in interviews. So I was interested about why. In other words, she's glad that she failed. In effect, <laughs> although, I mean, now her staff em- emphasized that the reason she voted for that bill was that there were certain things in the bill that she didn't like. Or she didn't vote for that bill. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you can yeah. always do that. You right. can always, you know, believe me, there were things that I didn't like. I didn't like the idea that they put, uh, you know, a, a $2.2 billion authorization in the bill that none of us knew were gonna, was going to be put in there. I've spent six years working against earmarks and, and things getting slipped into bills. I was furious when I saw that. But you have to weigh, you know, does anybody think that a piece of legislation that's going to avoid a default after this kind of circumstances is going to be perfect? Of course it isn't. That's what it's about when you're in the middle, when you're capable of moderation. You're willing to vote for something that's not perfect. Well, now you're facing a potential replay in February. Yes. Uh, So, I mean, and of course, the shutdown threat is in January. What do you see as what might happen? And also, what would be your role in this? Well, I'm going to try to keep doing what I always try to do, and that is get on the phone with Republicans. I was talking to Susan Collins, and she and I were working together on things. I was talking to Bob Corker. I was talking to Kelly Ayotte. I was talking to Lisa Murkowski. I was talking to Lamar Alexander. I was talking to my Republican colleagues throughout, trying to find a way forward. And that's what – and I'm glad we're going to finally get a conference on our budget. Um, You know, you can just tell how political things have become when for four years all the Republicans talked about – and all Fox News talked about was that we hadn't done a budget. So then we did a budget in the Senate, yeah, stayed up all night to ago, do it, right. and then they've blocked us going to conference on the budget 21 times since then. It's like, really? The budget was so important. Now you won't let us go to conference and work it out. Now we are. So I think we have an opportunity to do some things on spending, hopefully put some flexibility in the sequestration, hopefully do some things on the tax code that 
allow us to quit picking so many winners and losers in the body of the tax code, and that we can get a budget deal done by the middle of December and, and avoid this in, in January now, and February. Now, during the default and shutdown drama, you know, the Affordable Care Act, a big aspect of it, the exchanges got rolled out. And a lot of the problems with the website kind of got overshadowed by the shenanigans going on with the Congress. But it's still kind of a, a problem a few weeks afterwards. I know that you've been very critical sometimes of, of contractors and government contractors not doing their jobs. And it seems like the contractor that made this website utterly failed to construct a workable website. Is there going to be investigations or hearings or anything into that? And what is kind of your reaction to the rollout of the exchanges? Well, um, first of all, I, there, obviously there's going to be, I mean, frankly, um, they can't wait to do any kind of investigations they can around Obamacare. Uh, this has been, uh, they've kind of put all their eggs in that political basket mm-hmm. the Republican Party has. They've mm-hmm. made everything about their leadership around Obamacare. And um, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next two years. Bitterly disappointed that the website was not ready for prime time. Um, I think the incompetence uh, needs to be looked at in terms of the website not being ready. I do think that um, by the time people uh, need to, I mean, I typically when you have enrollment period, the vast majority of people don't do the enrollment period the first week. Mm-hmm, right. I mean, typically an enrollment period for a right. healthcare plan, all of us who've gotten it at work, um, you go from October to December, and the vast majority of people sign up in December. Mm-hmm. So hopefully by the time people have really are ready to make a decision about health care, the, the website works better. And But the interesting thing is, I'm going to find out, because, of course, unbeknownst to most Missourians, because they've heard over and over again that we exempted ourselves, which is not true, I have to shop on the exchange. Mm-hmm. I am Congress and their staff are the only people in America that are required to shop on the exchange. So I will be shopping on the exchange for my insurance. And um, I when I do, I'll document the whole thing and make it public so everybody sees exactly what I did and how I did it. Are you going to make a Tumblr of it? Or- uh, I'll, I'll probably do a little bit of everything. I'll mm-hmm. probably do, you know, some YouTube. I'll probably do uh, a, a Tumblr blog about it mm-hmm. and um, hopefully let people realize. And the, the irony is this is a free market solution. Um, you know, people I don't think quite get that when you go on these exchanges, you're just picking which plan you want Mm -hmm. um, among a bunch of competitors. Mm -hmm. There's not a government plan in here. There is no government plan. These are just private insurance companies, and you can get bells and whistles, or you can get bare bones. You can um, pick one hospital versus another hospital. You can pick doctors versus other doctors. So I think by the time this really gets integrated, those people who didn't have a place to go to buy insurance are going to have a place to go to buy insurance that's right. affordable. Yeah, I assume the website will eventually be fixed. And I wanted to ask you a more far-out question sure. because a lot of the questions have been immediate. The website's not working, whatever. But let's say those do get fixed, and let's say people do get insurance, whether it be through this or through Medicaid or anything else. One of the questions I've always had about the ACA is whether there's going to be the supply of medical professionals to treat people who are going to be going to the emergency rooms to primary care doctors and specialists. Some people have said telemedicine might help or nurse practitioners. Do you think the supply of doctors and medical professionals are going to be there when these millions of people are empowered with health insurance and maybe use doctors 
more than they did before. Well, preventative care is going to be stressed because we don't have enough primary care docs. And there's, you know, preventative care is now free because so, it's going to save us a lot of money. And by the way, that was never scored because you can't score what you're going to save from preventative care. But the idea that everybody can get a free mammogram, the idea that everybody can get a free colonoscopy, the idea that you can go in and get your preventative care, that will put some stress. And we will need to use nurse practitioners, and we will continue to have to really keep an eye on that. But on the back end, we should have less stress in our emergency rooms because they've been our primary care docs. You know, you know th- th- this whole idea of personal responsibility being situational I love it when my Republican friends lecture me on personal responsibility, but they're perfectly fine under the guise of the name freedom to have a guy decide to buy a new Harley instead of buy health insurance. And then when he puts the Harley on the pavement and has traumatic brain injuries, he shows up at BJC emergency room and we give him two or three million dollars worth of health care. And by the way, that cost is passed on to all of us who buy health care. So the notion that we are trying to get people to take personal responsibility should be very comfortable for Republicans. But they've um, instead tried to twist this into the notion that this is all about big government, when in reality it's about personal responsibility and a free market solution. Why do you think there is so much, uh, it's almost fear among Republicans. I mean, Cruz even said they didn't want to get the, the subsidies entrenched because they felt that after that it would never go away. When originally the this plan uh, was basically from the heritage, I mean, years ago, several right. years ago. It was Romney. I mean, it's what Romney put in in Massachusetts because it was a Republican idea, I a mean, free market solution to a better access and more affordability in health care. So have there been discussions uh, among you and the senators, you know, just hanging around about why the uh, why the change? Well, I, I, here's the thing. I, I think that this is not a perfect bill, and we are. I've already been part of, of efforts to tweak it and change it in ways that make sense. And all of us want to do that. I mean, the goal here is not evil. The goal is affordable, accessible health care. Now, you know, I don't know what's so wrong with that. And if this doesn't work, then we'll all go back to the table and try to find ways to make it better and make it work. So um, hopefully it will work. I am, you know, I, I am frustrated with all of you guys in the media because I feel like you let it go, this whole congressional exemption thing. Um, and nobody really put a stop to it. And nobody really said, wait a minute, there is no congressional exemption. And one Correct. thing that really bugs me about it, and you may know this because I've tried to get it out there. Yeah, I think you were on MSNBC talking about this, if I'm not mistaken. I was. Yeah. And so what I don't understand is if the, the only thing that we get when we shop on the exchange is we, we're going to continue to get our employer contribution. Which I have written about. I wrote, that, I wrote about that a week and a half ago. So if you, if you don't want my staff to have an employer contribution and you don't think I should have an employer contribution, then, then why don't you just give it up yourself? All of these Republican members of Congress are taking the employer contribution right now. If that's what's immoral, then why are they taking it? Why aren't they? They don't have to take it. They can cut their staff salaries by the amount of the employer contribution. So it's like they're using this as a political two-by-four in the most hypocritical way possible because they're saying, well, you, we're being treated differently because we're going to get an employer contribution on the exchange. Well, you're getting an employer contribution now. Give it up, buddy. If you don't like it, give it up. And nobody is really being called on that, and it's frustrating to me. How confident are you or pessimistic are you that the legislature will expand Medicaid next year? I am, you know, I, I, the Missouri legislature never ceases to surprise me. 
um, you know, it's the last week of session. And, you know, in the good old days, the Missouri legislature, when you'd go to meetings, they would be all about education and transportation. Um, if I were going to look at what the major responsibilities of the state legislature, besides spending federal money, which is um, a huge part of their budget, that's what people don't realize, is that um, a huge chunk of what Missouri legislature spends to balance their budget is, in fact, federal dollars coming from Washington. But they don't really talk that much about, in fact, a, a colleague of mine was saying that they, he was at a Republican meeting and it went on for three hours and no one ever mentioned the word education or transportation in three hours. It was all about Second Amendment. It was all about Obamacare. It was all about, you know, the U.N. and sovereign po- property rights and all of this stuff. So um, I, the, the idea that they are taking Missouri tax dollars and giving it to other states uh, doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the idea that they're going to have this kind of drag on our economy by closing these rural hospitals that will eventually have to close if they don't expand Medicaid, uh, it's its just a head-scratcher for me. And I've, I've talked to one Republican who completely gets it, and I, I said to him, I said, why don't you just call it the We Hate Obamacare <laughs> Medicaid Expansion? And then you will be able to solve your political <laughs> problem, but do the right thing for the people of Missouri in terms of policy. It, it doesn't seem like you're very optimistic, though, that that will happen. Well, I mean, I watched John Lamping on yeah. CBS Evening News. Um, a couple weeks ago, I believe. A couple weeks ago, yeah. National News. And here's a woman working jobs, three jobs I think right. she, she's working, $11 an hour. And she makes too little money to shop on the exchanges because she was going to be part of the Medicaid expansion. Uh, she's not sitting around twiddling her thumbs. I mean, she's these, these are the working poor. Right, correct. These aren't people, you know, I, I think there's this. And by the way, if you looked at the map that was in the Post-Dispatch, mm-hmm. guess where per capita the highest incident of these people are? Rural, rural Missouri. It's rural yes. Missouri. It's not Kansas City and St. Louis. You know, they have in their head these horrible stereotypes that you know, everybody in the cities is sponging off the government. And, it, and with all due respect, most of the working poor that are hurt on this per capita uh, by percentage are in red Missouri, not in blue Missouri. So I'm hopeful that, that, that they'll come to their senses. But um, it's, it's terribly painful to watch because, um, you know, we, we get more money from the federal government than we pay into the federal government. Right. If they do this, that will flip. Uh, we will get less money from the federal government well, than we it, pay in. It seems like you're trying to do something about it, and this kind of segues into right, our final right. topic, that you, you have in recent months been more active in maybe working behind the scenes to help legislative candidates, state legislative candidates. Kind of, I, This doesn't really surprise me that much because you've always kind of had an interest in state politics, even when you were a U.S. senator. I remember asking you occasionally when I was with the Tribune some state-centric issues about how Governor Blunt would do it was doing and you usually would respond and it would create statewide news sometimes. But why have you decided to kind of throw your political clout into expanding the legislature and kind of helping Democrats? Well and also organizing this state Democratic Party. I mean you and Attorney General Coster have played a pretty visible role the last six months. Well I, you know, I don't want to overstate this because I don't want people to think that, you know, I'm, you know, in some back room somewhere, you know, rubbing my hands together going, this is what my job is now. My job primarily is to be as knowledgeable and work as hard as I know how on issues that I'm going to be called upon to vote on in Washington and do the best job I can representing Missouri's, Missouri in Washington. But at the end of the day, I love this state. Mm-hmm. 
I know this state. And this state is not represented accurately by the current legislature. It's not who we are. And um, I can either be sick to my stomach about it or I can try to help. Mm -hmm. And I've just made up my mind I'm going to try to help in whatever limited way I can. And um, so I've been in contact with with uh, with Chris Coster and, and Jason Kander and Clint Zweifel, and we've you know talked about this. And um, I think the, you know most people don't understand that the last week of the legislative session is when you do really important things that Missourians need. And they actually passed the last week of the legislative session a bill because they're worried about people's property rights because of some resolution that didn't even pass the United Nations. Agenda 21. Yeah, Agenda 21. I mean, it is just, it's just, I think it's embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And it's not who we are. And I think, you know, I looked around and I realized that I was really busy in 2012, but we had a a candidate run for state representative in 2012 in a district that was almost 58% Democratic performing, and they didn't have an opponent. Mm -hmm. A Republican ran unopposed. Mm-hmm. I'm going, well, this is crazy. Yeah. We can't do this anymore. So I'm going to try to help a little bit, um, but I think it may be overstated among yeah. the, around the coffee machines and, and, you know, at political gatherings. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to help well, out Well, I mean, the bit. fact that you're getting involved at all, you don't have you, – you, you're, you're a national political, political figure, and you it would assume that, you know, your interest would be helping other national Democrats, which I know you were doing. So you're kind of doing this not necessarily out of the goodness of your heart, but no one is really expecting you to get involved in the grand role level. I think somebody, I think, uh, you know, if I have the ability to bring resources and any expertise to campaigns that will help us have a Missouri legislature that reflects a moderate, middle of the road, salt of the earth, great work ethic state that Missouri is, then I want to do that. We are a moderate state. We are not a crazy state. We are a moderate state. And I don't think the leadership of the legislature reflects that. I don't think their legislative agenda reflects that. And I would like to be part of changing that. Now, when I asked you about this, I think, at a transportation, uh, the arch ceremony, you mentioned that sometimes the Democrats weren't doing a good job of kind of combating the Republican message. Does that also include times when some Democrats actually voted for some of these bills that you've been criticizing, like the foreign law bill, Agenda 21 bill, Second Amendment bill? Does that kind of make your, your head scratch a little bit when some of these people vote for this, maybe to avoid losing in conservative districts or something like that? Listen, I understand. I mean, I don't vote with my party Mm -hmm. um, a lot. Um, I have been given time out in the corner in my caucus when I have tried to call out appropriators that were thought earmarks were the were the coin of the realm. I, I would never criticize anyone for voting against their party's leadership. Uh, I do think that there are some members of the legislature who have not really had um, a comfortable place where they were confident that their moderate narrative was a strong one. Mm -hmm. And when you're surrounded by voices that are very extreme, it's very hard to kind of like go, well, wait a minute. Maybe that is extreme. Um, I mean, obviously, these people down there think this legislative agenda was normal. I don't think it is. I don't think in a time when we are near the bottom of per capita contribution for education in this state and when we've got the kind of educational challenges, one of the most expensive tuitions in, in, in for higher education and all of the problems around in our roads and our bridges. We have more structurally deficient bridges than almost any state in the union. Mm-hmm. 
to me, it is not that they are wrong. I just think we need to get some critical mass around some mm-hmm. moderate issues that they can be more comfortable advocating for. Well, I think we're going to have to end it there. The senator has an appointment soon, but thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to be here. To close us out here, you can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at jrosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at jmanis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the senator on Twitter at at clairecmc. And I think Jason should figure out a way to uh, tweet a link to the recipe to those cookies. So that is my only request, that we get a tweet with the recipe for the cookies linked so that – and I will retweet. Oh, my. I will she retweet will, oh, the recipe wow. for your cookies. And you have like eight zillion followers. So, so I, I'm sure that recipe will get a lot, will. Of, a lot of play. It will. Well, thank you very much, Senator. Thank we'll you. be back next week. Okay. Until then, so long. Thanks a bunch.